Good Friday afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this Friday's Ed Diagnostician Clubhouse discussion. We're going to talk about we're going to talk about what happened at TEDA, and uh, so yeah, definitely there was a lot of reminiscing. I felt like at TEDA, I've I was maybe I was sitting with some older diagnosticians or maybe i'm just getting older myself but there was a lot of um sort of remember when remember when and yeah do you remember doing this and definitely so um takeaways from teta i felt like the main takeaways if i had to boil it down for a few words i've heard i heard you know big buzzwords this year are definitely multiple sources of data and um and just uh making sure that we're not using cut scores and making sure that um th those kinds of things making sure we're not basing everything on the score going beyond the scores uh, as tammy likes to always say and so um you know there were so many choices and I thought I'd just sort of list out a couple of um, choices for the first round of the uh, first hour, uh, our first session. And you all could, I want you to try to learn how to use there on your, on your, uh, on Clubhouse, you can hold down your profile and you can actually have some reactions. So, you could choose like thumbs up, clap, or whatever, and that would be great. So if uh, you know if you hear a session and you think um, maybe I went to that session, you could take a guess which session I went to. Uh, you can you know do a little reaction or something, or if you like that session, you could do a little reaction. Um, but so uh, the first one was Kara Zelinsky's writing effective impact and need statements. There was Ashley Arnold's dyslexia is complex, assessing doesn't, it doesn't have to be. Georgine did using your OT as a resource for dysgraphia. There was a guy named Christopher Wooden named, uh, that had something called dys how dyslexia affects math. Dr. Dean, of course, did his classic using Dean's processing PSW model. And Amy Blackwell had prior written notice, uh, the legal requirements and best practices. So, you know, the choice was hard. I really wanted to go to Georgine's and see the whole OT as a resource, but I feel like I'm doing a lot of that pretty well. What I wanted to see, what, and, I, and I've already interviewed Ashley Arnold and, and uh, Dr. Mather on on the whole, I, I'm sure that was about the Todd was, she was going to talk about the Todd. So, and I've I've been through Dr. Dean's training, so I, I I picked writing effective impact and need statements because I thought I might hear a little something about curriculum based measures in that one, and I did. I was so excited. I heard lots about curriculum based measures in there. So I took some notes on that. I thought I'd share those with you. And if y'all went to a different session and you have notes and you want to share them, I think that would be great. Um, Allison just joined, you know, y'all are, I, I got to meet so many people at the conference. Allison was, gave me the great 
um, saying that I posted up on Facebook today. And she said, let's stop admiring the problem and let's start doing something about it. I love that. So thank you, Allison, for that. Um, and I, I thought that was a good way to open this um, discussion too. That's what we've been do doing way too much of is just sort of admiring the problem. And we really haven't been doing enough about it. So uh, I thought Kara Zielinski's presentation really got to that. Um, she, she started the session by just going through the law and she said people ask her, where is it in the law that we have to write impact and need statements? And she said that uh, it says that the IEP must contain a statement of the child's disability and present levels of performance and that we are the ones most knowledgeable about the disability and the conditions and that the impact and need statement should come directly from from the FIE and that the FIE drives everything else for the IEP development. Um, she says that if you've been through your audit, you would know that uh, everybody's gonna get audited within a six year span. All of the schools in Texas will have been audited and over half were cited for non-compliance in the IEP development and the failure was in the present levels for this for a student um, because they didn't effectively describe the students uh, the impact of the student's disability on their involvement and progress in the general education curriculum she said you need to make sure you have three prongs one in your fie one is there a disability two what is the impact of the disability and three what is the need um, that the child has and she went on to say that people are often worried about including the in, in, including uh, needs and statements in their um, FIEs because they worry about predetermination for eligibility. And she said, that's not something you have to worry about. She said the IEP team has to decide if the description of the needs that we're talking about in the FIE actually constitute specialized instruction. And uh, she said that it has to describe both functional, developmental, and academic strengths and needs. She says the way we do this is we go to the vertical alignment under the star alternate two. She said that's a good place where you can get some information or help with the vertical alignments. If you go uh, Google star alternate two, you will see uh, some vertical alignments there um, for teaks that align down to the star alternate too. She said that there are uh, skills for listening, speaking, all those areas. So uh, she said you can go to, you can also go to the preschool outcomes. There is a, a document called preschool outcomes and I have used that a lot, especially if you have a first grader or a kindergartner and they're not reading or they're not doing ac academics or some developmental skills like other uh, children their age you can go there and get the preschool level and then use that as to show where they are or where they need to be and then a final place where you can find some of these alignments uh, a good one is lead forward that um, also has all the teaks for different grades and you will the 
these vertical alignments should give you the big rocks of the curriculum. So um, not the details, but just the big rocks for things that you that all kids should really get. So this is in that sentence in your impact and need statements where you would say, this child is doing this, but other children in his grade are doing that. So that's where you would start bringing in these things from lower grade levels uh, for what the child is doing. I was thinking about this and I was saying, you know, in my mind, if you talk curriculum-based measures as well, I really think everybody should be challenged to focus on those basic skills. And that's how I think I would take this one, one step further because basic skills is sort of the foundation or of special education. I know when I was talking to Mark Shin, he was saying that the basic skills were supposed to be the IEP goals and the, the curriculum-based measures were supposed to be measuring those basic skills for that reason. Uh, so a couple of more things. She said, you know, they kept talking about robust narratives. We need to have robust narratives. I read that in some articles in the dialogue as well, that wording, having a robust narrative. Things Talking about things like, are they passing? Are they passing the state assessments? Do they have passing grades? Does the disability affect their language and communication? Does it impact their behavior? So there are a lot of things to think about, not just the academics, but also their independent functioning. So she also said to go beyond, she talked a lot about the different kinds of disabilities and that within each disability, there are different focuses, you know, for example, in speech, there's, you, you don't just say, do this child's speech impairment, or you would say this child's speech impairment in the area of, you know, pragmatics, articulation, uh, oral expression, listening comprehension, there's there's different fluency, there's different areas of speech. And same when you have a child with emotional disturbance, there's five different areas that could qualify you as a student with emotional disturbance. She said, actually refer to some of those, the wording of some of those, and also use the word impact. She kept saying, use that word, because um, that keys people into what is the impact. And finally, she went into going to make sure that we talk about three things in our impacts and needs statements. The three things were content, methodology, and delivery. Content is, she said most of our kids, we wouldn't change the content. But of course, you then you have the few kids like your, uh, maybe your ALS, kids in, in adaptive life skills classrooms or in a, uh, in their self-contained classrooms where you do, where the content is changed. So, um, but for the most part, the, the content is not changed. Methodology, uh, those would be things like, is it in a small group? Is it hands-on? Is it project-based? Is it multimodal? Is it inquiry-based, cooperative groups? And then finally, the delivery. Delivery would be how often you deliver it or where you would de deliver that. She said to be specific, but to also be vague. So to give the teachers a little bit of flexibility, but also to have, so that you're not all out writing their whole goals for them, but you're, you, it's enough where 
you could be able to glean what the goal should be from that. And um, she said, if you're really worried about using, sounding like you're predetermining, instead of saying the word needs, you might use the word benefit. She said, the word benefit, um, how will this, this, these things would benefit this child rather than he needs A and B and C. That would help uh, make you not sort of not have that feeling like you're you're predetermining what the child needs. And um, finally, we got into a little bit of discussion about when does a child have so many accommodations that it is specialized instruction? Because a lot of times we'll say, oh, that's an accommodation, that's an accommodation, that's an accommodation, that's an accommodation. But we don't really realize how much we're prompting the kids to use the accommodations or teaching them to use the accommodations and that the kids do not spontaneously use the accommodations without our support, without our positive feedback, without our re behavioral reinforcement. So yeah, that was, um, that kind of discussion about being careful uh, about saying that a child doesn't need specialized instruction when you have just so many accommodations that are being recommended. Did anyone else go to Kara Solitsky's discussion, heard her speak before? Uh, she's from Region 4, and Region 4 is charged with child fines, so she's presenting slides that are copyrighted by TEA. So um, I thought that that was, um, that I felt like I was getting information from TEA, well, not directly, and it made me feel good that uh, I was, that I do use curriculum-based measures and um, that they do help to get at some of those impacts and need statements. And she actually, there were times where I, I've always had this question that you know, should uh, ideally we be getting assessments with the curriculum-based measure or getting referrals with the curriculum-based measures already in there, and then we just do our formal evaluations to finish it up. But there are many times where I've read in the dialogue and listening to uh, Kara Zielinski's um, presentation that they were saying that you do often have to go and use a curriculum-based measure to follow up some of these formal assessments for some things because some of the uh, formal assessments don't have, for example, a timed measure on nonsense wording or you know, some of the more particular things that you're looking for. So I thought that was great. Uh, I was just, at, at last night, I saw a post on Facebook and um, somebody posted something about dyslexia and IQ being part of the evaluation. And I got, of course, intrigued. So uh, I, they posted the, um, a presentation from Region 4, another one on Karis, by Kara Solinsky about dyslexia, evaluating for dyslexia in the FIE. And so I looked that up because I thought, well, wow, that, wouldn't that be a good sort of part two about what we learned about in the impact and need statements? And if you haven't um, gotten, watched that, I would say, I don't know why we haven't all watched this if you haven't watched it. We, that, that webinar is very important for everyone to watch. It, um, it, it basically was, uh, I, I wrote down a couple of key points from it uh, that I think is about some things that we've been talking about here as well. 
She said that evaluation teams and the ARD committees have to have more space to view various data sources in their totality and as equally important without an overemphasis on scores. And more specifically, that cognitive scores for determining a PSW and ultimately determining if the student meets or does not meet criteria for SLD. And um, she did say it would be possible for a student to be identified as a student with a specific learning disability in the absence of achievement and our cognitive weaknesses as indicated by scores on norm referenced instruments only. She didn't say don't do norm instruments, but she just said you might not see the weaknesses in the norm referenced instruments, that you might have to bring in some other pieces of information and you want a preponderance of data that would help drive that, but it might not always really show up in some of our more formal testing. Uh, she also said that there could be a lot of people on this assessment team, that it didn't have to just be a diagnostician, that it could be, but she did talk about people who would be on the multidisciplinary team. And finally, um, let's see, she also said, Assessments and other evaluation materials included are those tailored to assess specific areas of educational need and not merely those that are designed to provide a single general intelligence quotient. So again, I know Dr. Schultz mentions we have to assess cognitive, or we should, it would be better if we be assessing cognitive development, but not IQ. And I think that is something we um, we should we're that they we're being urged to get away from. And then finally, let's see, we had some some more quotes from that one. She said, when assessing a student in a language other than English, you might need to rely more on curriculum-based measures due to the limited number of norm reference assessment tools available in other languages. But I honestly, it's not just the limitations for students who in different languages, I felt like sometimes there are limitations for certain skills that we're trying to get at. And she's, there's also a reminder here, if the evaluation team only considers a norm reference test without considering things like writing samples and uh, other progress monitoring measures that occur throughout the year, the team is not really a investigating multiple sources of data that's needed to confirm its conclusions. So I also I th thought a good quote that I heard in that presentation was, a lot of valuable information can be gleaned by simply listening to students read aloud. And that when I heard that, I just thought of, Mark Shin saying at the end of his discussion with us, just listen to people, just listen to the kids read. What can be more special than that, than just listening to them read? We stop sometimes listening to them read. We, we are using computer driven things on, and, um, and that's just not always as 
effective as actually listening to them read. They talked a lot about making sure that you say something about prosody even and how and what it's like to listen to a child read. So yeah, the, that was um, some, I see a few people learning to give some reactions. I appreciate that. So yeah, anybody else wanted to join and talk any more about that? Um, got some comments. Allison says that uh, uh, somebody named Cynthia Bulcher once advised that if you're recommending five or more accommodations at a targeted area, you should probably consider creating a goal for that. Not a rule, just a law attorney. So there you go. Um, and that there's a webinar on evaluating dyslexia in the full, uh, in the FIE. Yeah, that's the webinar I was talking about. And Schultz is saying uh, he has to beat the drum for that webinar. She did a great presentation at TCASE in February. So, uh, all right. So the next hour was, or the next session, there were also, here we go again, a lot of great um, options of things to go to. You could, there was another repeat of Kara Solinsky. So you could go to that. You could uh, ha listen to Tammy Stevens present writing legally defensible reports. Uh, there was somebody named Jania Vorden Kuz with FAQs. I hope I'm saying Kunz, Vander Kunz uh, with FAQs. I, I met her briefly. Love to get to meet her again. Maybe we could have her on Clubhouse. I know Schultz was saying that I should do that. And then there was somebody named Jamie Benson and on the ARD committee collaborating with the paid parent advocate. And finally, um, the other rooms were just uh, the luncheon. You could choose to go to the luncheon. So I really wanted to go to Tammy's, but I tell you, everybody was in there. And I guess whoever, if you were sitting in Ashley Arnold's and a lot of people already were in there for that dyslexia training. So they just stayed seated and heard Tammy's in the same room and then nobody else could get in. <laughs> so because I went to something else, I couldn't get to go to Tammy's and just couldn't get in. It was just so crowded. Uh, so I did go to uh, Jamie Benson's and the uh, art committee collaboration. I just, you know, my poor, um, the, the person I'm mentoring, she has the school that's in a very entitled, well, I'm not saying entitled, uh, a very privileged neighborhood. There you go. Uh, and so these parents in their neighborhood actually pay advocates, not because they're upset about anything, but just because they can and they, you know, as parents, it's, it's like hiring a nanny instead of, you know, staying home with your kid. Like they, they want to just have somebody do it for them. So, like I said, they have no qualms about anything. They just want somebody to do it for them. They actually want them to go to the meeting for them. And I just thought, well, maybe I'll listen in for a few pointers for her. And I, I know I've had lots of meetings with advocates. I try not to have advocates whenever I can, you know, because I try to get rid of advocates. It's usually my first goal when I go to any school. Who are the advocates and who can I uh, get off out of my meetings. So um, 
So when I, I went in there, she was talking about getting a consent to work with the advocate, to really work with the advocate that, you know, the release. And uh, she said, but don't have meetings with the advocate when the parent's not there. Always try to have both of them there if possible. And uh, when you, she said, she talked about this thing that happens where the advocate or the parent, like, emails everybody and then everybody responds and then there's like this flurry of emails and you're not really sure if you even should respond or who's going to respond or who's going to say what and it just creates havoc she said when this happens it's just better to just stop and have an informal meeting the more you help you have that direct contact with the parent you're establishing rapport without the formalizations of an actual IEP meeting a lot of these sort of informal meetings do help a lot to come to common ground she said you want to figure out exactly where the parent uh, is what the parent hopes to achieve so asking them about their dreams and their wishes for the child can kind of cut back all the red tape and all the different clerical things that are sort of bogging your conversation down to get to what is really important. So um, she said there's no real timeline for sharing documents and that it is a courtesy that we do, but most people say to, to share the documents within five days and that um, the state, let's see, she, she said that a parent has to be able to access any documents that they ask for. And you don't have to share your own personal notes, but you do have to share anything that you shared with anybody else um, that you've collaborated with. Um, she said taking breaks in an IEP meeting with an advocate is a good thing just make sure whoever's recording the meeting doesn't record your break that was very good pointer thing to remember uh, she said if some paperwork error is highlighted and becomes part of the discussion bring the discussion back to how does this impact the child don't be afraid to admit a clerical error but remind the parents that this really didn't make a, any impact on the student and when a consensus cannot be met to offer to reconvene and that each item on the agenda is subject to discussion and reconvene so you know i've always had that question when you get to the end and they agreed on six things but disagreed about one little thing is that an agreement or a disagreement and she said that is still a disagreement you still mark disagree even though they agree with everything else and the iep committee can decide if they want to go ahead and implement certain parts of the things that were agreed on. So uh, she said, don't delay in sharing information with the parents. If you have a draft to go ahead and share it, just make sure you write draft over it. Don't forget to go over the deliberations at the end of the IEP meeting, even though you've been sitting through a long IEP meeting and it's two hours and it sounds redundant to go over it please do go over your deliberations at the end. She, rec she does recommend projecting your deliberations and walking through them. Um, and she says that, let's see, to, 
she suggests getting authentic signatures um, on the IEP. And, you know, that's a thing. We've gone, we've gone digital and some people are still saying via WebEx on their ARDS. Uh, she was recommending to get authentic signatures. However, we can do that. I don't know. I don't know where everybody is on the whole signature thing. I think it's like a, a thorn in some of our sides since we started doing a lot of virtual meetings uh, about how how these signatures are obtained. But um, I think everybody's in a different place on that. So yeah, there were a lot of things to think about in in that um, you know working with. I know everybody probably has their own little secret ways of dealing with advocates that kind of help. And you know, you're welcome to share those as well. Let's see, I'll go back to the chat and see if anybody else had. <laughs> Katie says preach on the on the electronic signature thing. Um, chasing down signatures is a pain, you know, and then some people have good technology for it and some people don't. So um, I have a little confession to make here. I am fasting and I have not had water since. 6 10 this morning so please someone if you have if you went to a teta session or you know come on up and please share because i do sometimes need a break after not having had any water or food since six in the morning um let's see and y'all know how to tell me you want to talk right just raise your hand in the bottom right hand corner and i'll let you up Meanwhile, until you do, I'll keep going. Um, so in terms, I know I didn't get to go to Tammy's, but I did find, I think, what is similar information in the dialogue. It was, in the dialogue, it was by um, Gail Sheremy, and it was, the title of it is Legally Defensible FIE. So I thought I'd read some of those. And if one of y'all attended and said, yep, that's what Tammy was talking about, then um, I, I, I bet this is providing some of the similar information. So um, in the Gail Sheremy article in the dialogue, um, she said that reasonably calculate the the FIE should be reason our goals should be reasonably calculated to enable the child to make progress in light of the child's circumstances. Don't stop at the score. Explain why the child has made errors. This is the part where she was talking about curriculum based measures. So I got really excited. She said use curriculum based measures to explain further. So an example would be although Mary's score on math calculations subsets was low. This was primarily due to three careless errors where she added instead of subtracted. And due to these errors, uh, a curriculum-based measure was administered to review, um, administered and a review of work samples in the classroom was conducted. These indicate that Mary has acquired the skills of subtraction, which was later confirmed by teacher input. Therefore, math calculations for subtraction is not a weakness, but her lack of attention to detail did affect her performance. So that would be an example of how you would write about using or going further. They call it a deeper dive. That's another buzzword that's sort of going around. A deep dive. Do a deep dive. Um, 
And then integrating and triangulating data was, um, you know, that was that was all definitely um, buzzwords also that were going around and is used in this article as well. Integrating data, she said, make sure, for example, you're using your speech language assessment so you can, that can also inform uh, any kind of, for example, if you're doing, if you're talking about curriculum, cognitive development, you would also bring in your speech language assessments to inform cognitive development by integrating that information into the information you have. Observations and interviews can also be one of the pieces of that data into too. And in general, you should triangulate. And what she gives definition of triangulation is that you use three or more pieces of data to make a conclusion. And one of those pieces can be your observation. One could be your your norm reference assessment. One could be that progress monitoring data. So all of those um, would help you to build that robust narrative so I, the way i always and i've always thought about it like imagine that fie was your child's um baby book you know like a baby book you're like my only did his first word then you know and you have pictures and all of that kind of thing i try to make this like my fies as much as possible to you know what if i'm just describing my own kid and what would i want to hear in that robust narrative that story of this child and their school history and how they how does their day look um, throughout the day so um she said to make sure that you're giving very specific examples of the parents concerns and how the parents concerns were addressed right there in your fie that um, is very important and she said that valid FIEs inform decisions, not just uh, for eligibility, but they also inform decisions about services. I thought it was really interesting at the end of the article that she had a matrix about data collection categories. So there was on one side of the matrix, there were there was formal and informal. And on the other side of the matrix, it was direct and indirect. So a formal direct would be like your KTA3, your norm referenced assessment. Uh, then your formal indirect could be like behavior scales where it's a published tool, but you don't actually, um, you're not actually watching the kid do the skills right in front of you. You're asking maybe a teacher or a parent to rate a child on that formal tool. Then there's the informal direct, which are your behavioral observations and your informal indirect, which would be like a review of records or interviews. And I was like, well, where does CBMs fit in there? You know, uh, so she said that curriculum or I was thinking that curriculum based measures could be either formal direct or informal indirect because we need um, but because of where we do talk about um, it, it, I think it would depend on how valid the tools are that you're using and whether you got, you received, you went into the evaluation already having that information or um, whether or not you actually sat there and watched the child perform the curriculum based measure themselves. So, um, you know, there was a whole lot more. Um, to discuss and I just can't do it all in one week. So I think I'm going to have to do another week of part two of, I mean, there was Pfeiffer, three sessions of Pfeiffer. Um, there was a, 
hour of reading from Pfeiffer. There was an hour of writing from Pfeiffer. And if you were a T-ped person like me and you wanted to stay and listen to another hour of math by Pfeiffer, well, you could do that too. And, you know, Pfeiffer, neuropsychology, they, they go all into the brain and where does all this stuff occur. But the main thing he started off with all his speeches were basically the way I've talked about a lot of things, the NAEP, the NAEP, we keep going back to NAEP. It's really the longest source of data that we have on our whole country. It's uh, math, reading, and for the lot, we, we, this, this data goes back 25 years, I mean, 50 years, I think it is 50 years. And they've done like 25 times. They do it every other year. And, you know, the, just coming back to how, how much COVID's impact us, because it's really the only measure since COVID that we really know all these norm reference tests haven't been updated since COVID. Um, so going back to that NAEP and seeing how much COVID has affected us is, is really um, interesting. And he, kept, he did bring up those graphs of, um, that we have from the NAEP. So uh, then he would go into things about, you know, where different things happened in the brain and, and, and different kinds. He's very much into subtypes subtypes of dyslexia, subtypes, and we've talked about subtypes and, and you know, different opinions on that in here uh, in the past. So, um, you know, whether or not you want to call it a subtype, but he said he feels like they should have, you should talk about subtypes because he feels like that kind of steers the way you rec make recommendations. So, um, yeah, I thought that that was interesting. Here you go, Allison, come on up. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about the whole subtype thing? Okay, you talk, you're going back to Pfeiffer and yeah. uh, subtypes of dyslexia. Yeah. Um, yes. That goes back to, I think it's in the, it, one of the essentials books he wrote or co-authored or something, the, one of the chapters on uh, learning disabilities. So that kind of goes back uh, several years. I mean, I, I'm, I don't necessarily talk about that specific thing, uh, the specific subtypes in an FIE, but there are different strategies from whether the deficit is phonological or orthographic. So um, it does inform the service, I guess, but he gets very technical for me and the red dots and the blue dots on the different parts of the brain. And I just don't, I, I'm not ever going to have an MRI for each one of my kids. So it's right. interesting, but again, that was, I think that's where we talked about I, that's admiring the problem, but it doesn't get practical to me until I know how to recommend something to do about it, I guess. Right. But I, 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 I tapped, I raised my hand hoping that maybe we could get to Ed. I don't even, I, I don't see him here anymore. He made a, um, he made an analogy and maybe we can just throw it out there for everybody since uh, I don't see his face right there. Um, the analogy that he made, I think in the keynote about the, the infrastructure of the city is broken and there's potholes and there's uh, 
there are problems that people aren't fixing. And instead of addressing the infrastructure, we're hiring more ambulance drivers because more people are getting hurt. And that resonated with me, but I don't, I, what, what do we at, at our level, what do we do about that? Well, what's my part? What's my role in that? We're going to continue to ask for more special ed teachers, more diagnosticians, more speech paths, more LSSPs, but it doesn't seem that we're really addressing the problem at the problem level tier one. Right. Well, and that I go back to too is um, a lot of people confuse tier one and core instruction. Okay, we have core instruction. Now you need local norms to determine the tier one, and we don't have local norms. So I think, you know, one thing I just want to advocate so much for, however, I don't know how we do that, but we need to go to our leadership and say, what are the local norms here? Because we do, we are starting to have local norms with a dyslexia screener. That's just a taste. That's of things to come. With a dyslexia screener, if there's so many kids that are not passing the screener, they're going to say, well, okay, what's going on in that classroom or in that school? It, it is sort of starting to build that tier one by just by having that dyslexia screener. I know um, Sherry Lee, I, I listened to her discussion um, about triangulating data, which I guess I'll have to present that or summarize that next time. But um, she talked a lot about that you know, maybe having too many kids not pass their dyslexia screener is a bad sign. It's going to start raising flags for certain schools and certain classrooms even. So, yeah, um, that it's, it's starting. It's trickling. The RTI is coming. We can keep banging the drum, but it's already coming from TEA, the corrective action. The federal government wants us to do RTI. You know, that's, it was put in the law. They want us to do it. So if they're doing corrective action, they're going to put keep pushing it. And then even the dyslexia community is, is pushing it. I mean, we think of them as being sort of on the opposite end of the federal government, but even the things that they're doing is, you know, by requiring dyslexia screeners, that that's also pushing RTI as well. I just want us to start l looking at the at our referral packets and pushing, advocating for more valid data in our referral packets. First of all, we don't get good information in our referral packets, but then even though even the things that the teachers think were that they're giving us we hold ourselves accountable to having strong measures, tools that have low uh, standard error of measures and, you know, that, that are they're very valid. But the teachers have no requirement. And I keep going back to the science of reading. You want to keep talking about the science of reading? The science of reading starts with the science of assessment. What tool are you using and how scientific, scientific. is it? So um, yeah, we are where it starts. That that's what I think. And the more we keep insisting that we have more valid measures, the the more you know we that that's all I can. I mean, there is a lot, and there's not always we can't do everything anything by ourselves. We have to be a team. 
with our general education. It, we've got to stop this whole special ed, you're in this corner, and general ed, you're in that corner, and this is a general education initiative, and that's a special education initiative. No, RTI was established by special education. So stop saying that it was a general education, it's a general education initiative. It's all of our responsibilities. It's general ed's responsibility and special ed's responsibility to make sure that RTI happens. That's, I, that's those are just my thoughts on what, what, but I, you know, that's the whole reason I started this clubhouse is that I, with that very question, Allison, what can we do? <laughs> what can we do? I, I, I think the discussion with um, Dr. Uh, Mikhail Small from last time was interesting because what that discussion made me think, I, I, she brought up the Flint and, the, and everybody being poisoned. And I was like, okay, so what if everybody was poisoned? Does everybody get special education then? And then what does that look like anymore? Because, you know, the whole thing about special education was integration, but how can you integrate when everybody's already disabled? <laughs> what are you integrating with? You know, it just doesn't make any integration makes you think, okay, you're the minority and you're integrating into the larger majority. But when three-fourths of the kids in the classroom have dyslexia or, um, you know, some kind of high-level autism or, or something, ADHD, then what is integration anymore? And what does that look like? And I've seen a classroom where five kids go down the hall to this dyslexia room and five teacher and that five kids go to that dyslexia teacher and five go to a resource room and there's five left in the general ed classroom. When do we just bring all of those interventions to the classroom and let everybody have them? Why do, we, why do there have to be barriers? Why do we have to jump through hoops for kids to get good evidence-based instruction? Let's see if we got anything more in the chat. Let's see. Jody says that the autism supplement, she went to that one. Uh, something about an autism supplement being informal, infor informative, and that the LSSP does hers um, until this year. And so filling those out has been different for her. Um, let's see. Shannon says a new diag, as a new diag, the PWN. Going to that one was very informative. Yeah, those are a little tricky to fill out, and I, I agree. Um, anybody else got anything, or should we start winding it down? Like y'all are um, interested this week on what all was going on at Teta. Uh, the I think that I just was when we was talking about Pfeiffer going back to that. I I was trying to think what was the main takeaway that I was trying to that I could take from Pfeiffer, and I. I was watching something on Science of Reading that was similar to what Pfeiffer was saying. And I think the main thing I take away from that is explaining to parents why kids shouldn't memorize words when they're reading or look at pictures where they're reading. And the reason is because what he was saying is you have your auditory part of your brain and you and it's for language. It's for interpreting language. It's a construct in your brain that's actually built from for language over years and years of evolution. And then you have the, another part in your brain in the back of your brain that is for 
visual interpretation. In the video I watched, it was saying that that part of your brain is for recognizing faces. That's why that facial recognition subtest is in the KT, KABC. But, um, and he says, there's no, there was, there's no construct in the brain that's for reading. You, you know, that there, there's a construct for language, there's a construct for visual processing, but there's no construct for reading. And that you actually have to create that neural pathway that sends messages between your auditory part to the visual part constantly and the way you're building that neuro pathway that neuro highway for reading is by actually doing phono phonological skills phonological you know the whole um both phono phonological awareness and connecting that with print which is the orthography so if you're not doing the orthography and you, or you have trouble with building that neural pathway um if you're just memorizing words in other words and you're not connecting the sounds of the words with that you're not building that neural pathway as as well so and he he went on to say there are a lot of things about the english language that make it really difficult that that were um not a some languages are more simple languages they have shorter syllables less phonemes uh you know different languages have different present for different challenges for kids in our brains um but you know he talked some about that but i i think the main takeaway that i got from him is just that phonics is important for building that neural pathway in the if we're not using phonics then we're not building that neural pathway as well so um i you know there were a couple of things he said that i was like oh my gosh that could be really misinterpreted he used the word, I don't know if you caught it, Allison, he used the words, uh, three, the three cues of reading or something like that. And I was like, oh my gosh, three cueing system. Yeah. No, no, did three you hear him say that? Yeah. yeah. But he's saying that the brain has three different cues that it uses to read the syntax of the sentence, the visual memory of it. And, um, I, I can't remember, but he, he, he was talking about those three cues that the brain uses. But then people have turned that into those are the strategies we should actually teach, which is not what we should do. So I can see how things in the math one, the same thing happened. He brought up the, he, you know, first of all, he's teaching or he's got the screen that says that when you do vertical calculations, your brain processes the information quicker because our brain processes going down for math, the sort of abstract things, it processes it better going down. And for reading and language things, it processes it going better going across. And that's why we read, you know, we were reading, especially if you're from a language where you read going across and you do math, you know, vertically, it's, it's different. You process it quicker. Your tens and ones are in the same column, you know, so you can quick, more quickly process that information. And but then he brings up this guy who's talking about equations and using a fulcrum instead of an equal sign. And I was like, oh, no. But then these teachers, they hear that and they think that they shouldn't present anything vertically. Why? And then we have kids who all across Texas who are processing math calculations slowly and not building automaticity. 
So, and he did talk about getting bogged down. That's another one of my pet peeves. Bogged down in teaching kids five different ways to do a math problem and not ever building any kind of automaticity or comfort level for the kids in any of them. So, um, yeah, those, those, but I just felt like there were some things he could be saying that could get misunderstood or have been misunderstood. A lot of listeners here today. I appreciate y'all joining. We're coming up at 523 as a good hour or so. Um, let's any if anybody got anything else they wanted to say, join in. Um, I I I'm fine for to talk for until about 545 or so. Then I have some place I've got to go. So anybody else I we can talk all night about. Teta, there was just so much going on. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I, I thought I was going to get to meet Sattler at the at Teta, but ap- apparently he was on a Zoom call and they just had us sitting in a room uh, with, with Sattler on a screen. And, he, you know, his whole presentation was up there um, and all you could see was his head and he had his head down speaking reading a lot of information. He's like 91 years old. I, I had got my, you know, Sattler book. I was gonna, just looking forward to having him sign it. And he wasn't even there in person. So, and then he was talking about trauma and child abuse and um, why we were, why we are, you know, to, just the whole referring kids to uh, child protective and services and and how girls were uh, experiencing so much trauma. Uh, I, I mean, I think the audience was, it was a discussion for a, an audience, um, but that wasn't diagnosticians, maybe school psychologists, but um, that was an, an interesting um, session to, to as well. And um, I, I had to, some of them had to just like pop in and pop out and try to get as much information and feel for the conference so I could share it with you guys. But definitely, I feel like the most important thing for us to take away was, you know, all the talk about triangulating and multiple sources of data and um, going beyond the score and all of those kinds of things. So, yep. All right. All right, Candace says, thank you. All right, guys, I'm going to wind it down. I am just thirsty and hungry and I gotta get ready. I actually have a Toastmasters speech. I don't know why I'm killing myself today, but I I went ahead and said, yep, I'll do this Toastmasters speech. But you know what my speech is going to be about? It's going to be about, I've, I, this is the Toastmasters speech I've been doing, um, is uh, about curriculum-based measures, of course. So social justice and education, that, that this is the tool to drive it. I really appreciate y'all joining. Thanks, Allison, for being brave enough to come up and give a few comments. It does help. So we'll wind it down. I'm going to go ahead and close the room. Do another session of this TEDA. Because I didn't even talk about the whole second day. <laughs> this was just the first day. So, yeah, there were two days of the conference. But, yeah, we'll... Um, Let's talk about this next week, and I I am working on some new guest speakers, uh, so 
um, looking forward to sharing that with you. I think I confirmed one of them today for May 5th. It, it's something having to do with math and curriculum-based measures. So um, very special speaker there and a couple of others as well, working on getting them to join. If y'all have any recommendations, always ping me, let me know. Appreciate it. All right. Nice ha spending some time with y'all. Talk to you later. I'm going to close the room. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.